Hello, everyone. If you're new to Promo Kitchen, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $17 billion promotional products business. I'm Bobby Lehu, CEO of Robin Promotions, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Mark Graham, President of Right Sleeve and CEO of Common Skew. Today, we're privileged to have as our guest Seth Godin. Seth has written 14 books that have been translated into more than 30 languages. Every one of these books have been a bestseller. American Way Magazine calls him America's greatest marketer. Business Week held him as the ultimate entrepreneur for the information age. Seth has many accomplishments, but I want to point to his latest project, The Icarus Deception, which will be available in January. The Icarus Deception is a book about the mythology of success and failure and how our economy rewards people who are willing to stand up and stand out. Seth, welcome to the Promo Kitchen Tribe, and welcome to our program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, the two of you, for the effort you put in. It's unsung, but really appreciated. Seth, are there key factors to differentiating in an industry where you're seen all as the same, such as banks, florists? How, how do you be remarkable in a profession or a business where that type of perceived environment exists? Or even business specialty items? Yes. Advertising specialty items, sorry. Um, here's the thing. Mm. Industries where everything is seen as a commodity are that way because the industry wants them to be that way. People in an industry either work to be just like everyone else but cheaper, or they work to be different from everyone else. And those, the second one is a lot more rare. But when I think about anybody who enters a commodity space, what they're basically saying is we want your RFP, we want to bid on your project, we want you to pick from this catalog, we want you to look at their standard items, because we've organized our entire operation around making average products for average customers. Because at the heart of the industrial economy is that scale gets you efficiency. Efficiency uh, is what industrialists seek, and it pushes customers to become average. And what's fascinating is that every industry, every industry is capable of not doing that. And my favorite example is what happened in the steel business. When I was a kid, there were basically two steel companies, U.S. Steel and Bethlehem, giant steel mills that raced to the bottom in terms of pricing to be massive industrialists who would get you average steel for your average building. And then a company called Nucor came along uh, and they started what was called a mini mill. And a mini mill would not make you average steel. You paid extra, but you got something extra. You got specialty steel, high tensile steel, steel with less impurities, steel that could build certain kinds of buildings, etc. And the big guys looked at that and they said, we don't care. Go ahead and take that little sliver of the market because we'll just keep doing what we're doing. We're so efficient. And bit by bit, Newcore and the other mini mills expanded what they did to the point where the giant steel people went out of business. Because given the choice, customers want a choice. And the choice they will make is to not be out. Seth, I have to throw in a, a, a little question, follow-up to that. A, a lot of people that are on this call are probably thinking right now, hang on a second, we deal with big Fortune 500 companies that send out RFPs to 10 different promotional distributors and that we then have to go out and fill out a form and specify specific prices and sometimes divulge costs and do all of this stuff that ultimately strips out a lot of the creativity in the business. Do you have any 
quick words of wisdom for people that are selling to such large companies that are ultimately dictating the terms of the purchase? First, thank you for pushing back on this. These are the best kinds of conversations. Um, yeah, it's simple. If you're waiting for the RFP, you've already lost. Yeah. If, you know, the industry is the way the industry is because people have let it be that way. And yet, there are plenty of people, and I would put your company, Mark, as an example of that, that say, well, if you're going to send me an RFP, I'm not even going to bother. I mean, I don't know if you say that, but your big wins are with clients who talked to you before they sent out the RFP, who don't use an RFP. But the fact is that most of what organizations buy is not bought based solely on price. That if you look at the kind of car we buy, or the kind of windows that get installed in a $10 million building, or who uh, you know a giant uh, retailer is buying their carpeting from, they're not buying a commodity because they don't want to be in the commodity business. They want to do something remarkable that stands out. And the RFP is the last resort of an industry that has given up. And so I think that rather than blaming the state of the industry, you see this as the opportunity. And the opportunity is, how do I earn enough trust by making enough of a ruckus, by doing enough art, by being generous enough hmm. that they don't bother issuing an RFP to save 20 bucks on T-shirts. Yep. They call me because they want to do something special instead. Yep. It, 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 I think it's such a challenge in, in the industry, but I think that there have been, I think that there's the small wins that you focus on and then you really start to see how um, that can change the buying landscape. It, it's, a, it, it's such a challenge in the business, but it's exciting to see that if you do have that confidence in what you do, that customers will be willing to purchase it. Um, I, I've, I, Seth, I have a, a, a question that ties into uh, a blog post that you wrote in 2006 called Small is the New Big, uh, which ultimately became uh, a book collection of different blog posts. And the, the reason I, I wanted to refer to this is that there's a, a lot of small entrepreneurs in the promotional products business I think are quite interested in growing and scaling and becoming larger businesses. Yet, there's this challenge, I think, when people start to grow, that they start to lose their mojo. They start to become less special. They start to lose their art. Is there, uh, I think the question that I'm trying to ask here is, is it possible to be big and awesome at the same time? Or is that something that is fundamentally impossible in this day and age? I guess I would start by wondering what awesome means in terms of awesome to who. Uh, in the industrial setting, big is almost always required if you want to have industrial size returns. Hmm. So General Electric can you know, make a nuclear power plant or a uh, MRI machine precisely because they're so big. They sell big. That's what you buy when you buy something from General Electric. On the other hand, if you're going to a chiropractor, it's not clear to me that you will have a better experience if the chiropractor is part of Chiropractics of North America, Inc., and there's 300 chiropractors in the building, it's not going to make your experience better. Mm. So uh, the, the real question is, what do you sell, and why do the people who are buying it uh, value it when you sell it to them? And I'll give you, you know, a million examples, but if you look at 
what value is created by someone who makes a birthday cake from scratch? Mm. You know, you're buying flour for cheap and you're buying sugar for cheap and the farmer makes a few pennies. Uh, the next level up is that you buy a uh, cake mix where the Duncan Hines people are going to make more than a few pennies because they offered you something of convenience. The step after that is buying an Entenmann's or a cheap supermarket cake that's pre-made and now the supermarket makes a, a dollar on top of that. The step up above that is you go to your local friendly bakery where they know you by name and they're going to make 10 bucks or 15 bucks on that cake partly because it's convenient but mostly because you like the way it made you feel. And then the last step is you go on your birthday to per se a restaurant in New York that takes a month to get into and dinner costs $275 yep. and you're delighted to have paid whatever portion of what you paid for that cake because it's a cake you're going to remember for the rest of your life. Now, you paid that much not for the calories or for the flakiness, but for the way it made you feel. So you can't tell me what a cake is worth because a cake could be worth anything from a nickel to 50 bucks. Mm. Now, if you're in your industry and someone thinks what they're buying is the imprint on a piece of ceramics, then you better get as big as you can, as fast as you can, because you're only going to make pennies every time. Right. <laughs> on the other hand, if you have figured out the equivalent of per se, if you have figured out how to bring together, you know, a limited edition Milton Glazer hand-signed T-shirt that is uh, irreplaceable. I met a guy in Germany who makes um, books for clients like Adidas, and the books cost between seventy-five and one hundred fifty dollars a copy. Adidas would buy about a hundred copies of a book, a book about a rugby team that they commissioned. And at 150 bucks a piece, it's a $15,000 item. And they gave those books to you know, their retailers, et cetera. They got way more than their money's worth. And yet, it's something that a typical, I'm going to order it out of a catalog seller, could never have sold. The challenge, to answer your question, is if this guy's company had 500 employees, A, he couldn't keep them all busy, and B, few of them would be as smart and as connected as he is, and they wouldn't be able to make these expensive sales. So mm -hmm. it's not clear to me that big is the answer if your goal is to be a non-industrialist artist. Seth, switching gears a little bit, you seem to have defied what is now known as the most advisable route for authors to build an audience. You know, they hear, get on Twitter, get on Facebook, build engagement. You've stuck with writing, speaking, and thought leadership. You haven't engaged on these platforms nor allowed comments on your blog yet. You create some of the most engaging content on the web. Here's my question. Many of us look to you as an exemplar, and I, I know you're un, a little uncomfortable answering questions about you, but I'm wondering what this means for us as brands and individuals. What lessons can we learn from your success despite not engaging on these popular platforms? Okay, well, I don't think I ever once said people shouldn't engage on these platforms. All I've said is I no, can't. I can't do it. I can't do it for two reasons. Reason number one is... Uh, the resistance is strong enough in me that if I knew every time I posted something, I would have to engage in anonymous criticism uh, that's often personal, I would just stop writing. Um, and so not hosting that on my blog in the form of comments uh, is an easy choice for me because the other alternative is to have no blog at all. 
Um, if people want to engage in it, feel free. Just don't do it in my front row. Um, in terms of the other social networks, here's the problem with them. And I think we're starting to see that I was probably right about this, is it doesn't scale. That, you know, you don't friend Starbucks. You can press a button that lets Starbucks into your life, but Starbucks is not your friend. And the reason they're not your friend is if you're having a bad day, they're not going to call you on the phone and say, I heard you were having a bad day. <laughs> Starbucks is not a person. And right. if I was on Facebook or Twitter, I would not be a person either. Right. I, would, I would be a staff of people because if you sent me a note, given the number of people I'm lucky enough to, to have reading my stuff, I would, it would be literally impossible for me as a human being to answer you. So rather than yeah. being a pretend friend of yours, I just chose to tell the truth and to say, I'm, if, it, if it's got my name on it, I wrote it. And I'm not going to pretend that I did it. Um, yeah. So what does that mean to organizations like yours? It's this. I think that uh, if you have an appropriate number of engagements, and there's no reason that business can't have those engagements with 100 or 1,000 prospects, then by all means, that works. But if you are a massive brand or you want to uh, touch 100,000 people on a regular basis with, with content, um, I don't think anyone online has successfully described how you build a bridge between what we expect from a human and what we expect from an entity that's bigger than a human. Mm. Great points. Seth, there's a, a, an active debate in our industry around how uh, technology is or has disrupted the promotional products business. And I'll give you some context here for my question. Uh, we've seen how sites like Expedia and Amazon have come in and almost single-handedly obliterated the travel agent and the, and the local bookseller business, respectively. Um, yet Amazon and Expedia have, and their ilk have been around for the better part of the last decade. And if you look at the promotional products business, well, there's no question that many companies are starting to move online. The very biggest of the online players represent a mere fraction of a percent of the overall sales volume in our $18 billion business. Do you see an industry like ours where there's a where there's an element of customization and that relationship with the customer is being a little bit more immune to disruption compared to those other industries uh, what do you see happening for an industry like ours in the next five to ten years do you see us being taken out by an Amazon or, or, or similar well here's the distinction uh, Amazon and uh, kayak and all the other popular consumer disintermediaries tend to sell one item at a time. And what that means is that all customers are pretty much the same. Whereas in your space, someone might buy a million dollars worth of stuff and then the next customer might buy a hundred dollars worth of stuff. Hmm. And treating different customers differently is one of the key watchwords of uh, understanding how business works. So I don't think there's going to be one universal answer. But when I look, for example, at a company like Custom Inc., Custom Inc. has built a multi-million dollar business by saying to people who have $100 to $10,000 worth of t-shirts to buy, this is faster and cheaper and easier and it works. Um, and as a result, if you're a little local t-shirt guy, 
that's not good news because that is your bread and butter size market as well. Yeah. So in, in industries where uh, speed and convenience are important, uh, expect to be disintermediated in, this, in, in, in specific niches um, because particularly if there's repeat customers, as there is in a business like Custom Inc., uh, we see this happen. It, let me make this distinction because it's really important. Amazon spent billions of dollars to get 40 million people to use them at least once. Because the theory was, if you're going to use Amazon once, you're going to buy another book soon, you'll use us again. So the lifetime value of a customer is high. So the question is, going forward, in the specialty business, are we talking about one-time customers or are we talking about long-term customers? If we're talking about long-term customers, the challenge you've got is simple, which is can you keep the people you have and engage them so that they bring in their colleagues? Because if that happens, then the Internet is your friend. On the other hand, if you are relying on Google to be found and you are creating an environment where you're begging your customers to a price check you, by going to Google, then the internet is your enemy because um, there's always going to be someone around the corner who's going to take it at a loss to get a new customer. So if that changes this business to be one of maintaining relationships with clients that are worth courting and romancing, you've got to figure out how you can do that and still make a profit. Mm. Because the answer isn't every once in a while really stick them uh, for a lot of money. I think the answer is sell them something they can't buy from anybody else. Bobby, I know that uh, one thing that you and I have chatted about in, in past podcasts is the is this idea that in time the promotional industry will be made up of three principal players. The, the first of which will be the online players. Uh, the next will be the people that are really focused on fulfillment, companies like Robin that will take on programs and manage company stores for people and, right. and, and, and pick and pack. And then you'll have the more ad, uh, ad agency style businesses that will take a more creative and strategic uh, approach with their clients. And then the rest of, of the smaller players will kind of go away. So that's, uh, that's interesting to get Seth's view on that too. Yeah, absolutely. Seth, we, have, we, we think we have a tremendous opportunity to facilitate powerful emotional connections in the new connection economy with branded products by incorporating a tangible gift that surprises and delights people. How do you recommend we enhance the connection economy with branded products? Okay, so in the business-to-business -business setting, people don't buy – in the business-to-business -business setting, almost everything that's bought is not bought by the CEO. It's bought by someone else. And the person who's doing the buying is not spending their own money. So what they are buying, in fact, is not the price. They are buying a story. And the story they're buying is, what will I tell my boss? So the first question is, how do we create an environment going forward where the story uh, that you bring to your boss is not, I got this standard boring average tchotchke for a nickel less, but that the story is, using some of those words you just used about making connection and surprising people. Because if that story gains in currency, then more and more business people will want to tell that story to their boss. Mm. Part two is what story do we tell ourselves when someone gives us one of these items? And the problem that I've seen as a buyer and a 
and recipient of uh, this stuff that your industry creates is over the last 15 years, many people have engaged in a race to the bottom, which means that when you leave a conference or when you leave a meeting, you need to find a uh, available but not obvious garbage can to throw the piece of crap that someone gave you that you will never use and not want to have on your desk hmm. because hmm. someone decided to save money instead of make a difference or make an impact. And hmm. so I think the junky part of the industry is doomed in the long run because we already have enough junk. We don't need more stuff. We need more meaning. And you just don't find meaning in a nine cent in, uh, personalized pen. It doesn't work very well. Yeah. It, it, it's always depressing to walk outside of a conference hall like at the Javits Center in, in New York or wherever a, a conference may be taking place and to look at the trash bins and see uh, stress toys and 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 their and and similar products, it's it's somewhat depressing. Yet it's always, I suppose that depresses me about the industry. But then what gets me so excited about the industry is looking at the promotional gear that hits Facebook and Twitter that people are so excited about, and they're wearing yeah. the product and they're giving a shout out to the brand, and it just really shows that emotional connection. So I think that it's 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 a business of opposites. Um, Seth, I'm just taking a look at the time here, and, and uh, I, I think we probably have time for one more question before we get into about five minutes of, or five to ten minutes of Q&A from, from the audience. All right, well, I'm having fun, so you can use whatever time you need. Oh, all right. Well, hey, great. Um, don't say that to Bobby. You know, Bobby will go on forever. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but Bobby, yeah. Bobby well, talks fast, so we'll be on the I thought you were going to say Bobby talks funny. You know, yeah, funny act. and slow. All right, the okay yeah, yeah, thing. Go, yeah, yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Mark. Exactly. Okay. Um, all right. Well, m m maybe two or three more questions, but I, because I know there are some people that are here. Well, at least someone's enjoying this. Somebody is. <laughs> that's that's the Seth Someone fan club right there behind him. All right. No, everyone's. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's from Seth's office. <laughs> Anyways, oh, okay. I uh, I I was going to say that. Uh, so, so blog. Or, sorry, I've been reading this, Seth. I've been reading your blog. I, might, I get my words straight here. I've been reading your blog for years and years, and, and, uh, and you wrote this post just yesterday called Four Questions Worth Answering, and people that are listening right now, you should go and Google this if, uh, if you want to see what I'm referencing. And what's interesting about this is that it reminds me that sales and marketing is actually really dead simple. Understand your customer and his or her worldview, and you're well on your way. Um, in light of that, how cautious should we as an industry and keeners in business be of all of these shiny new tools that distract people from fulfilling these simple strategies when it comes to customer engagement? And when I talk about the shiny tools, I mean Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Squidoo and blah, 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 blah. To some extent, that can be a bit of a distraction, I think, at the end of the day. What, what, what are your comments about that? Well, I want you to try to imagine it's 1968, and you're thinking you're investing in someone, and they say, yeah, our business uh, is based on cutting edge use of the telephone. And yep. we have, everyone in the office has a telephone, and some people in the office know how to use a touchstone phone. I mean, no, that's not the way we talk about it then. The telephone was a tool, and its purpose was to connect to people. And if you use the telephone right, it's because people wanted to connect, engage with people. The telephone became invisible. It was merely the means to the end. 
So when you hear anybody, particularly a social marketing consultant, talking about tools, you really have to say, well, what is the tool for? And is the tool likely to lead to more connection? Because here's a hint, Twitter followers and Facebook likes are interesting metrics, but they are not a replacement for connection. And you know, it, we know that maybe one out of a thousand Twitter followers will click on a link when the average person sends it to them. That means if you have 100,000 Twitter followers and you tweet something, maybe uh, 1,000 people will click on that link, and maybe 10 of them will buy what you just said. Right. That's not effective, right? And so we look, for example, at the difference between what happened to Oprah when she was on TV and what happens to Oprah when she tweets. When she was on TV, she could look people in the eye and talk to them in a way that made them believe in what she said. And she could make a book not the number one bestseller because there was a connection. <clears throat> when, when Oprah tweets from her iPad that she loves the Microsoft uh, Square, if that's what it's called, the Slate, the, what's that thing called, the new tablet, whatever it is. Um, Surface. Surface. She doesn't sell very many of them. Right. Because we're not, we're not connected with her on this topic, and nothing comes through that feels urgent or real. And so if you're racing to use these new connection tools because you think they're going to scale, that may be, but you also have to understand they are merely a shadow of human connection. They're a digital indicator of it. They're not a creator of it. Seth, there's a mentoring aspect uh, to Promo Kitchen and the tribe here. There's lots of uh, young entrepreneurs starting out in our profession. Um, many don't know that your first book that you co-authored, uh, you were rejected 900 times. Is that right? Um, actually, the first book, uh, I sold it the first day. And um, it was the second book that uh, ah. got 900 rejections. So I think if I... If it had been my first book, I probably would have given up a lot sooner. <laughs> but given that I understood that it was possible, um, yeah. it made it easier for me to persist. And that's one of the things that informs my work, is that I like showing people that, in fact, it is possible. Because once you know something can be done, like the 40-minute mile, it makes it way easier to persist long enough until you do it. Mm. Uh, so what can we look forward to in the Icarus Deception? Can you give us a, 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 t a hint of what, that, what, what we can expect? Um, well, I've got four books coming out at the end of December, um, three of which you can buy online and in bookstores. But the Icarus Deception is the real uh, cornerstone of it. And my argument is, as I started in Lynchpin, the industrial economy is 100 years old, and it's over now. And the recession that we lived through is a permanent one. Um, there's the cyclical economic one, but there's the permanent one of those jobs where you got six-figure salaries to do what someone else told you to do, uh, are over. and uh, it's being replaced by the connection economy, which rewards uh, people who do something new or different or that makes an impact. They reward what I call art. And so this is the chance of a lifetime if we choose to take it. The problem is we have been brainwashed our whole lives into thinking that a good job and a good education and a good career are all about compliance and conformity and doing what we're told. And it goes so deep that even the myths that we were told when we were five 
I mean, up in that uh, story of the Icarus deception. <laughs> if I ask anyone what is Icarus about, let's say don't fall too close to the sun, that hubris, uh, disobeying your father and the boss, uh, leads to the wax from the wings melting and you will surely die. But that, in fact, if I can say that there are facts associated with the myth that's not true, um, <laughs> is it what the myth said? Until 150 years ago, the myth had two parts. One part was Daedalus said to Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun. But he also said, and don't fly too close to the sea. Because if you fly too low, the mist will weigh down your wings, and the waves will surely engulf you, and you will die. And I think we have been guilty of flying too low for a long time. And what I'm arguing as urgently as I know how is that we have no choice but to fly high. Far more people are under stress and are failing because they flew too low than the few who had the guts to fly closer to the sun. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I, I think that, that there's, there's a number of questions that have come in and in, in the interest of uh, trying to get to a few of them before we end, uh, I was I, I wanted to start off with a with an easy one for you here, Seth. This comes from uh, our friend Dan Piggott in the Hi Dan, if you're listening to this, and and he asks uh, a question that I think that everyone in the promotional products industry is is dying to ask you, Seth. It's a tactical one, Seth. Have you ever? Let me see here. I can just pull this up on Twitter. Have you ever personally used imprinted promo items in marketing? and which ones have been the most successful for you personally? Um, well, thank you, Dan, from Big East. I appreciate it. Uh, I use stuff that I make all the time uh, for this uh, new project. I made the LP record album edition of uh, my book, not to sell. I sold nine of them, uh, but to give away because it's so beautiful. And as an object, uh, it filled me with, with joy and pleasure to create it and hand it to people. Um, I would say uh, two or three times a year I create something, um, usually in a fairly small scale, uh, and give it to people. Not because I'm trying to make a sale, but because uh, it makes me happy to have molecules in addition to bits in my life. Uh, I can't tell you, however, the last time I uh, ordered something from a catalog that I put in the book. Um, maybe water bottles when I do my seminars. I love making uh, water bottles for people who come instead of buying them bottled water. Uh, and in those cases, uh, I have found that uh, the fact that you can make a water bottle for just 100 people sort of blows the folks in the room away because it turns this session that's intimate by nature into something that also feels shiny because you're using a big company kind of tool in a small company space. So I guess that would be my answer to that. Right. Uh, Bobby, can you see the questions here or you want no, me to? Uh, no, I actually, go ahead. I can't see them in my queue. So uh, Ruth, Ruth Verver uh, from Austin. Hi, Ruth, if you're listening. Uh, Ruth asks, I'm a big believer in learning from failure and being stronger in the end because of it. Seth, do you have a story that you wouldn't mind sharing about how uh, about a time where things didn't go your way and how he turned it around. 
You mean other than the 900 rejections or the time I was almost arrested in the offices of AOL? Well, we didn't hear about the arrest. I mean, we heard about the 900, but we heard <laughs> that, that you sold. Good. We heard that you sold the book the first time, so it didn't really count. We want to hear about an epic failure. <laughs> Let's hear the arrest. <laughs> um, well, the the big book that I did for Kickstarter was 19 pounds, and it's 800 pages long, and it has two covers. And one cover is called "This Might Not Work," and it's a list of not a handful, but actually dozens of times that I've had epic failures in the projects that I have done. Mm. Um, and the story that I tell on page three involves, uh, I'll tell it as quick as I can. Uh, when I ran uh, Yo-Yo Don, which was the first online uh, direct marketing promotions agency, uh, we uh, were giving away, we did promotions to contests via email. And our biggest client was AOL. They accounted for about a third of our business. And we had another client, Carter Wallace, that made Aradex for dry deodorant. And we did this big promotion, 100,000, 400,000 people in it. And uh, one day, all the people on AOL got their email from Aradex for dry deodorant instead of from AOL. It was a mistake. And at the time, AOL stock was going through the roof. Everyone there wanted everything to just be fine. They didn't need to succeed. They just needed not to break it. So Audrey, the VP at AOL, calls me up pretty much screaming about what had happened, and I popped her down from the ledge and explained that, you know, we had a tech glitch and we'll fix it and don't worry. So the next week, uh, the email goes out, and it was long again. And uh -huh. everybody at AOL got another Aradextra email, Aradextra email, and she called me, and this time she was screaming, and she was hyperventilating, and she was out of control. And, you know, I'm often a calm uh, business person, so I said, look, this is horrible. I totally understand why you're so upset. I'm going to get on the next shuttle. I will be in your office in the end of Virginia in three hours. I will look you in the eye, and we can fix this. And I will never forget what she said. She said, if you step foot on AOL property, I will have you arrested. And then she hung up. So I got on the phone to my team in Boston with the tech and talking to them. We hired a guy at triple the pay of anybody else in the company to make sure stuff like this would never happen again. We got him to quit some big fancy job. And he came uh, to work for us and built all these systems. And next Monday I go into work and I log on and I open my email. And in the address I had set up for our AOL promotions, there's an email from Aaron Extra Dry. And I'm literally telling you this story. I'm still shaking, right? Because this was oh everything. This was, the, this was 70 people who were going to lose their jobs. And it was oh. all over. And I called Dan, and I'm talking it through with him. And his office was in the basement, which was good because he would have jumped out the window. Well, it turned out that Mark, the guy we hired, had set up a special shadow account where everything would happen before it happened. So the only people who got the wrong email were me and Dan. Oh. We persisted, and uh, it all worked out. So how's that for a dramatic story? Oh, my gosh. God. <laughs> yeah. I, I get butterflies for you. Oh. Wow. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that, that, that is, that's truly awful. Um, I, <laughs> I, <seven. laughs> I love the soundtrack. The soundtrack is really great. It's good. I don't know. We need that. We need it every time, Mark. We'd be a lot more interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bobby, go ahead. Yeah, I, no, I, I actually don't have any final questions tonight. And do you have any others that you see in the queue there? Um, 
there, 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 there's one, and, and Seth, you've, you've touched on this. Uh, why, why don't we make this our last one, and then we'll just go into our finale. Uh, you've touched on this a little bit, but I, but I, I think that since this question comes up literally all the time in our industry, I'm going to ask it again, and this is coming from, um, from Sanjay. The question is, in our industry, I'm going to paraphrase, in our industry, particularly for the small to mid-sized distributors, which really makes up the vast majority of our industry, we all have access to the same supplier catalogs. Buyers have seen those same supplier catalogs time and time again. How is it that small to mid-sized distributors that don't make their own product can truly differentiate themselves? I think I know the answer to this, but I think it would be really important to, for people to hear this again from you. Two answers. Each, each, each one stands on its own. Answer number one is, if that's your problem, stop selling stuff that's in a catalog. Yep. Right? I mean, what if I said, I'm having trouble making it as a writer because all I do is use paragraphs that other people write, but no one wants to buy them from me at a premium. And all I do is read speeches that other people have given. Well, of course no one wants to pay me a premium because I'm just like everybody else. Throw all the catalogs out. That's one strategy. The other strategy, and it's way easier than you think, and the other strategy is to say, yeah, the stuff is only a tiny portion of the story you get to tell your boss. You also get to tell your boss the story of 24-hour-a-day customer service. Someone comes to my office and sits next to me. They bring it to the loading dock. They put it in the special things and make sure it's hand-delivered, and they whistle a song while they're doing it. And there's all the stuff that goes around the stuff if you want there to be, right? But the whole key of differentiation is you need to be able to sell the sentence and say the sentence and have the sentence be true. We will sell you something no one else can sell you. And if you can't say that, don't be surprised if people are going to send you an RFP. Yep. Well, I'm glad we're recording this and, and, and publishing that because that's uh, it, it's certainly quotable and, and certainly tweetable. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll remind ourselves of that uh, in the future. Yeah. Uh, I, so in closing, Seth, I, I wanted to, first of all, give you a huge, huge thank you for spending uh, nearly 45 minutes and, and almost an hour even before this call chatting with you or with Bobby and myself. I want to remind everyone who's listening that Seth has generously donated his time. The number, Seth is not the kind of person who normally does these things for everyone and yeah. he was uh, inspired by the Promo Kitchen story and about what, what, uh, what all of us in the industry are really trying to do in terms of sharing best practices and furthering the conversation. So uh, the, the first thing I wanted to say, Seth, is a massive thank you. This is, uh, I, I've, uh, I've had butterflies in my stomach all morning and uh, th this has been wonderful. Still have them, I should say. Um, but on a, <laughs> on a final note, I wanted to say uh, that no one makes money off Promo Kitchen. We're not a commercial entity. We're 100% tribal. 100% tribal. That's right. 100% volunteer. Um, there. But in light of that, I want to I give a shout-out. Uh, in addition to Seth, I want to give a shout-out to two special members of the tribe that have put a lot of sweat equity and talent into, uh, into all of our efforts uh, specifically for this podcast, uh, the first of which is T. Hamilton. Uh, T. is one of our chefs and uh, did all of the marketing and creative work, all the work that we sent past uh, Seth for his approval. 
T, your efforts uh, have, have uh, always been appreciated and certainly go unnoticed, um, or we notice them, I should say. And then another shout out to Charity Gibson at Green Banana Promos that has been our communications and social media maven. She's wonderful, and uh, Charity, we love you, and thank you so much for all your time and efforts. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at info at promokitchen.com, Twitter at promokitchen, Facebook promokitchen, and of course, promokitchen.com, and then iTunes, where this podcast will be recorded and published within the next couple of days. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, everyone, for all of your time. And until later, have a wonderful day. Thanks, Thanks guys. Ciao. Take care.